It's not all the Bible says about the Christmas story. And it's not the end of the infancy narrative in the book of Matthew, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Today I want to look at the rest of the story. Why do all of our Christmas pageants and plays, and why do we end the story when the wise men exit, when Matthew has more to say to us? So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, and I encourage you, if you have your phones, if you have a Bible, to turn there, because we're going to be referencing the text a number of difficult times. And so what we're going to see as a disclaimer is that the story is actually a pretty difficult part of the story to read, and we'll understand why it's not a part of most Christmas pageants and plays. But this story that's difficult is a part of the story that we need to hear if we're going to see how the message of Christmas brings us real comfort for our places of sadness and pain. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 13, and I think it'll be up there for you on the screens as well. 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. This is the word of God. As we read that, I think we all see that it's, it's, it's not hard for us to see why This part of the story isn't a part of our telling of the Christmas story in our pageants and our plays, especially in kids' plays. The way that we do Christmas in our culture, it does tend to be somewhat one-sided and one-dimensional. We have our songs of Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. We have the Christmas uh, spirit, the true meaning of Christmas. We have warmth, and it's a time for us to be in the comforts of home and with family. And there's a tendency in all of that for it to be a little sentimentalized, pretty commercialized, that it's a time of happiness and joy. And there's something that's good about that. I love Christmas, and there's something that I love about that. But there's also something that can be problematic with it, because the holiday season, just as Mike was sharing as he introed the song we sang, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, can be one of the hardest times for people. It can be one of the hardest times for us. The holidays can remind us of our loss and our loneliness, and there's not just cheer at Christmas, that there's also tears at Christmas. In addition to the pain in our personal stories, there's the pain in the world around us. These things that we're surrounded with, terrorist attacks, the refugee crisis, violence in the world, those things don't disappear during Christmas. And so a shallow or a sentimental Christmas doesn't offer substantial comfort for these kinds of things. And it can often make people feel isolated, make things feel worse. 
The church, as one blogger said, I came across a blog, can be guilty of this, can be guilty of sentimentalizing, sanitizing, or spiritualizing the story of Christmas in the scriptures. And what happens when we do that is we miss this radical and crazy claim that God is the God who is with us. That God entered into human history and all of our brokenness and misery and pain, and we miss the radical theology of this incarnation. That God did not remain afar from our world, but he entered into it. And it's important that we, we don't miss this. If we're exploring Christianity, maybe some of you are here and you're not yet Christians and you're just exploring it. Or if we've been Christians for a long time, one of the main places we're to look in the Christian faith for a resource to deal with our sadness. And to deal with our pain. And to deal with the reality of the world that we live in is the Christmas story. That's why I've always been intrigued by this part of the story. The story that tells us what happened after the wise men left. It brings the rawness, it brings some of the realness of the Christmas story up into the forefront. And it answers the question, why doesn't Matthew just end the story after the wise men exit stage left? And the reason is, because this part of the story is meant to show us how the message of Christmas can bring transforming comfort. Real comfort, substantial comfort to our deepest places of pain and sadness. So I want to look at the things in the story that tell us that because Christmas is true, we can have true comfort. Three points that I want to share with you this morning, so if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Christmas shows us, one, God is present in our pain. Two, God is healing our pain. And three, God can use our pain. So first... Let's talk about how Christmas shows us that God is present in our sadness and pain. One thing that I've learned as a father is what's important when somebody's crying or when somebody's in pain. I don't know if you saw my wife and my four boys are here this morning, but so we have four boys, 11, 9, 7, and 4. So one thing we have a lot of in our house is crying and pain. We have a lot of wrestling and a lot of crying happens with my kids I've learned that it doesn't help if somebody's crying or somebody's hurt for me to go across the room. Are you okay? No, you'll be fine. That doesn't really help them that much. And what they most want when they're crying, what they most want when they're in pain is for me to come close and to be present and to say, are you okay? It's going to be all right. And that's true for any of us. As we look at verses 13 through 15, if you still have it out in your Bibles or your phone, just look at that. These verses are about how Christmas shows us how God is present in our sadness and pain. And he's present in our sadness and pain in two ways. One, he enters into it. And two, he actually experiences it. Five times in Matthew 1 and 2, as Matthew is telling us the story of the birth of Jesus and his infancy, he pauses to say something happened to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament scriptures. Fulfillment really is the the overarching theme of Matthew 1 and 2. When Jesus had to flee with his family in Egypt, Matthew says, as he quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that this fulfills this passage, out of Egypt I called my son. You think about that, it's a little bit confusing at first, because that, that phrase in the book of Hosea is not a prediction. It's actually talking about the past, something that happened in the past in, from Hosea's perspective, the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And that makes sense when we see how Matthew 
is using the word fulfillment. Fulfillment is much bigger than just Jesus fulfilling a checklist of certain verses in the Old Testament. Fulfillment is about Jesus fulfilling the whole of the Old Testament story, bringing it to its completion. So Matthew is just giving us examples in the infancy and the life and the birth of Jesus of how the Old Testament story is fulfilled and completed in him. And so what he's saying is that in order for Jesus to rescue and restore humanity, he first had to enter into our sadness, our pain, and our brokenness. Just as Israel suffered under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, just as Moses was almost killed himself when he was an infant, so Jesus had to enter into that story too. Think about that. The first thing that God did in this once and for all of human history, His entrance into the world, the first thing that He did was simply to be present in a world of suffering, of pain, and sadness. Jesus' first assignment in His redemptive mission was to flee as a refugee to Egypt. That's profound. This language of fulfillment means this was very intentional. This is a very intentional part of God's plan. Jesus could have been born at any time, under any circumstances, at any place. He could have removed Herod from power before he came in and was born in our world. But when he came to be with us as a baby, he didn't arrive in a place of safety and comfort. He wasn't with a family that could protect him and keep him secure from these threats. He chose to be born during the brutal and the violent reign of King Herod into a poor and a vulnerable family. Why is that? I love the way that N.T. Wright answers that question. I wanted to share what he said. Put it up on the screen. There's no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. That's what this chapter is all about. God enters into our sadness and pain. It's also important that we see Matthew is showing us that Jesus didn't just enter into our sadness and pain to observe it, but to experience it and to feel it. And this is where the theology of the incarnation becomes very practical. This idea of God with us becomes vital to our faith as Christians. In chapter 1, Matthew establishes that this is a fully human baby named Jesus. He is God with us. Fully human, fully God. And so this means that from his birth on into the rest of eternity, God knows exactly what it's like to feel, to experience human brokenness and misery. That his first human memories are the trauma of fleeing for his life as a refugee to a foreign country. Some of you may have seen the show Undercover Boss. It's where a boss goes into disguise and acts like their employee and learns things about uh, their company and about the people who work in their company. I want you to imagine this uh, Undercover Boss scenario with me. Let's say the most powerful man in the world, Donald Trump. Just kidding. Not Donald Trump. Barack Obama. Imagine the President of the United States, Barack Obama, goes undercover boss. He went completely undercover into the country of Syria. And so he went to live in a Syrian village. He experiences their fear and their terror at any moment of being killed, of being driven out, of being forced to who knows what. He meets with a group 
of Syrian refugees who are planning to escape, planning to get out of their country. He gets in the boat with them as they travel on, and he travels to Europe. He hears the desperate cries as they're making this journey. He hears them calling out to each other, hoping that they make it. He enters into the country. He feels the shame of being searched and unwelcome and settling in as a refugee. Imagine if that really happened. And then Barack Obama comes back to the United States and shares his story. He says, this is what I did. And then he speaks to the situation that's happening in Syria and in Europe and into this crisis. Would that change the way that the Syrians heard him? Wouldn't that change the way that all of us heard what he had to say? He didn't just visit on a diplomatic visit, but he experienced, he felt their plight. So that analogy isn't perfect, but it's a picture of how Christmas offers us real comfort and how it brings real comfort into a world that we live in, a world of violence, a world of terror, a world of refugee crises in a way that no other belief system can do. Where is God in everything that's going on? Christianity says he's entered in. He's experienced it. And all the other monotheistic faiths, they say it's impossible. It's inconceivable that God would become a man. So God is outside of the experience of human sadness and pain. In Eastern faith, pain and suffering is a necessary part of the eternal cycle of life and karma. It's something to be escaped, not something to be entered into. And in a secularist approach to life, there's no real meaning behind our suffering, the suffering in the world. This world is all there is, and we're alone. So only Christianity offers us a God who understands and comforts us from the inside of our pain and of our sadness. Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff is a philosopher, and he lost his son in a climbing accident. He wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And what he wrote in that book brings to life what Matthew is trying to tell us in these verses. Here's what he said. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I have always thought this meant no one can see his splendor and live. A friend said, perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. But perhaps his sorrow is splendor. Christmas shows us that God is present in all of our sorrow and pain. My second point is that God is healing our sadness and pain. The next section in the book of Matthew, verses 16 through 18, show us God's not only present, but that he will one day heal our sadness and pain. At first, when you read this passage about Herod, And the slaughter of these children, it doesn't seem like there's any hope in this difficult passage. But when we read the passage in its context, and with all the connections that Matthew intended us to read it with, it's meant to bring a hope of healing even to our deepest places of sadness and pain. So let's let's set the context. And I have a, a bunch of different slides for us because there's a lot of context here. But when we see it, the message of hope emerges from this text. First, the slaughter of the innocents. It's a picture of Israel's sadness and pain. The story of Herod killing these children has come to be known as the slaughter of the innocents. And based on the population of Bethlehem, which was a small town, the number of little boys who were killed was probably somewhere between 7 and 20 little boys. And this was a terrible, 
horrible thing to even read about. And the truth is that it was just one picture of Israel's ongoing sadness and pain. If we just look at the, at the reign of King Herod, how brutal and terrible it was. When he came to power, he slaughtered the last of the dynasty before him, the priest kings of the Hasmonean dynasty. He executed more than half of Israel's supreme court, the Sanhedrin. He had his own wife, her mother, and his sons all executed. Even when King Herod was on his deathbed, he arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be gathered and killed as his death was announced. So he was a brutal and a violent ruler. And one of the main points we're to see here is that two people are called king in the Christmas story. King Herod and the king of the Jews, Jesus, given that title by the Magi. They represent two kingdoms, two reigns. Jesus, it is saying, came to end the reign of sadness and pain. With, the, with his arrival, the reign of tears, the reign of oppression, the reign of sadness is coming to an end. The next point of context is Jeremiah, Israel's weeping prophet. When Matthew recorded and told this story, this horrible, horrible, tragic story, he knew the only proper language he could use to describe this was the language of lament. And so he connected this tragic event back to the book of Jeremiah. And if you know Jeremiah, he was known as the weeping prophet. He's the author of the book of Lamentations. Because he was the prophet to Israel at its lowest and most painful point in the story of Israel. When Israel was being sent off into exile. And he saw this happen. And the point is that Israel is still in the exile that began in Jeremiah's day. Next point of context is this place that's mentioned, Ramah. What is Ramah? The specific lament that Matthew quotes is Jeremiah 31.15. And in that section there in verse 18 of Matthew Matthew chapter 2, it mentions a very significant place and a very significant person. The place is Ramah. Ramah was a city north of Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem was taken over by the Babylonians and sent off into exile, the captives were all gathered here in this city. This was the city where they were weeping. This is the city of their pain where they were gathered before they were taken from their homeland. The families were separated. They knew this was the end of life as they knew it. So Ramah, Ramah came to be the city of sadness, par excellence in the Bible. The person mentioned is Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's wife from the book of Genesis. And Genesis portrays her as a woman of intense sorrow. She was... She was, for many years, infertile and couldn't bear children. So she was grieving in the book of Genesis about that. She eventually did become the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, but while giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel died. She named him the son of my trouble. And she was buried very close to the city of Ramah. That's the connection between Rachel and Ramah. Rachel is the grieving mother of Israel. Ramah is a city of mourning and tears. The next point of context is where this verse comes from that Matthew quotes specifically in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. So, so far we have a picture of Israel's sadness and pain. We have a weeping prophet, a city of sadness, a weeping mother. Where then is the hope for healing? Why is, why is Matthew telling us all this? The answer is that it's found in the larger context of the chapter, Jeremiah 31. So when Matthew quotes this verse, verse 15, he's not just pulling us 
uh, pulling that verse out and saying, just look at that verse, he's sending us back to that whole chapter. We already said Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He spent so much of his time in his ministry lamenting and weeping and calling for the people to repent. But in Jeremiah 30 through 33, he wrote his book of comfort. He prophesies of a journey, a second exodus, where Israel returns out of exile, out of sadness, out of pain, and back home, back to God. I want to turn to that. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah 31, 13 through 17. But there's a picture that's given to us there. In that picture, it says, The young woman shall rejoice and dance. The young men shall grow old and be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with goodness. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. The picture is of God leading a procession of people dancing, and they're singing, and they're rejoicing. But all of a sudden, the procession is interrupted by a voice of lamentation and weeping. That voice is what Matthew quotes. And on the journey back to Jerusalem, they've come to the city of Ramah. And all the painful memories come back. And the journey comes to a stop. But God says in verse 15, I've heard your tears. I've heard the voice of your lamentation. And I've heard the voice of your weeping. And he says then in verse 16, Keep your voice from weeping. Dry the tears from your eyes because I will make sure we get to the end of the journey. I will make sure that we make it home. I will lead you from mourning to joy, from sorrow to gladness. So how does all this come and apply to our lives? As we look at Matthew 2.18. First, Ramah. Just as the story of Israel had a Ramah, we all have a Ramah in our own stories. I know that I do. We have a place of sadness, a place of our our, our lowest place, our place of pain and sadness. And these are the types of things that often the holidays and Christmas can bring out and bring to the surface. Matthew says, a voice is heard in Ramah. God is saying, I know your pain, and I hear it. I hear your weeping. Grieving and weeping and tears are a part of the journey. And to speak personally, for me, for my own life for a moment, the first step in my own discovery of how God can heal my own pain, my place of Rama and sadness, is actually learning how to cry. So I know some of you are criers and some of you are not. And it might be stereotypical, but a lot of guys think that big boys don't cry. I'm still not good at crying. Because my Ramah had created a wall around my heart that prevented me from giving voice to my lamentation and grieving. And I know for a lot of us that's true. 
But if we don't lament, if we don't weep, we won't ever know that God hears us. What struck me about this verse is when it says, Rachel refused to be comforted. In verse 13 of Jeremiah 31, God says, I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. But verse 15 says, Rachel refused to be comforted. And God had to convince her that he could heal her, that he could bring that comfort. One of the biggest obstacles to us for experiencing healing in our own Ramaz can be our own refusal to be comforted. Some of you are here today and the biggest barrier that stands between you and faith in Jesus Christ is your Ramah, a place of great sadness and pain in your life. And you say things like, I refuse to believe in a God who would do this or allow this. And I know a lot of those, who, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we refuse to talk about our Ramahs, our place of sadness, our lowest points in our life. We say, I'm not going there. And I've never grieved that loss. I'm not going to open it. Open that place of my heart up. It looks different for all of us. For some of us, there's a lot of doubt. Our hearts are hardened by pain and cynicism. We're afraid to hope, so we refuse to be comforted. Our hearts are hard. For some of us, we, we go to despair. Our hearts are so burdened by the pain, we can't see past it to what comes next. We won't see past it, so we refuse to be comforted. And that pain defines us. We can doubt, we can despair, but we can also deny. We deny that the pain and the grief is actually there, and we pretend that it's no big deal. So we can't open up our heart to the comfort that God wants to bring, the comfort that we can bring to others. And these reactions are understandable because these things are so hard and so difficult. Because like what happened in Matthew, these are the places of great loss in our lives. How can they be healed? How can God bring healing? I think this, exact, this is exactly where Matthew wants to meet us with this story and why he gave us this story to show us that even when things are at their darkest in history, God is at work moving the story of redemption forward. It's true on a macro level with God's redemptive plan through Jesus here, but it's also true on a personal level. Even when things are at their most hardest and most difficult, God is at work in moving your story of of redemption forward. The journey from exile to healing, it must pass through our places of sadness and pain. This is how our mourning is turned to joy, how our sorrow is turned to gladness. We don't go around our Ramaz. It's not just in spite of our Ramaz, but through our Ramaz that we find God's healing comfort. I've been really helped by how Jerry Sitzer explains this. Jerry Sitzer is an author. He lost his mother, his wife, and their four-year-old daughter all at once in a car accident involving a drunk driver. He wrote a book called How the Soul Grows Through Loss, A Grief Observed. Here's what he says. He says, Loss will either, either transform us Or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. It is not therefore true that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. Loss can also make us more. I did not get over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up a permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. 
however painful. Sorrow is good for the soul. The soul is elastic, like a balloon, and it can grow larger through suffering. This idea that loss can actually make us more, that loss can actually be good for our souls, that joy and gladness can come through pain and through our sadness is hinted at here in Matthew 2. But it becomes clearer and it becomes sharper in the story of Jesus until it becomes the major theme of his entire life and mission. I talked with Stephen this week before I um, came here and was just processing what we were going to do. And he shared with me that he already debunked the myth of the nativity scene. He did it gently. But as he shared how the wise men weren't there at the original birth of Jesus and they came many months, maybe even a year or two later. Nativity scenes are one of my favorite things about Christmas. I had a nativity scene growing up, so I always love to get that out. So my, my wife and I, um, we love to decorate Christmas, and we were getting all of our things down after Thanksgiving. As I was up in the attic, pulling down our nativity scene, all my boys, my four boys said, No, Daddy, we can't use that this year. We can't use that. that, that we can't use that. I said, Why not? And they said, The baby Jesus is broken. So having four boys means no nativity set is ever safe in our house. I didn't know he was broken. I wasn't surprised, but we pulled out the nativity set together, and we pulled out all the pieces, and there we had the baby Jesus. And they had glued him up, and he was cracked. He was missing his arm, and he was missing one of his legs. And I thought, let's keep it. This is actually a great picture of the story of Jesus. That this little baby, God with us, one day his body would be broken. And he even now bears the eternal scars that are proof he's entered into our pain. He's experienced our pain. And he will one day heal all of our pain. Jesus didn't escape the slaughter of innocence as an infant. But later he would willingly choose to enter in to that experience at the cross. The innocent son suffered and the father lamented the death of his only son. So the saddest day became the day of joy. The darkest day a day of light. Out of suffering, out of death comes life. Our comfort is knowing that God suffers with us and God suffers for us. So that the source of our sadness and pain, the curse, the evil, the sin of the world will one day be lifted. And these things will be erased and God will wipe away tear, our tears from every eye. Real quickly, my final point is just a few words and thoughts of application. <clears throat> Christmas shows us that God can use our sadness and pain. And simply put, it means that the people who have experienced God's presence and healing in their sadness and pain are the people that God can use most powerfully to bring comfort to others in their sadness and pain. If you know something of God's comfort in your affliction, God can use you. Maybe especially at Christmas. As we enter into people's stories, as we look for people who are hurting, as we let them know that they're not alone, Let them know that we've experienced loss and pain too. And as we look for ways to help them along their journey, past their ramas, to find healing, to find comfort, to find God, even at their deepest place of sadness and sorrow.
when we experience that, God can use us powerfully to help others taste that as well. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that as you hear our prayers and you intercede for us, you intercede and you pray for us as one who knows our tears, who, who has cried himself, who has shed human tears, who has suffered in a human body. We thank you that when we bring our sadness and pain to you, that you understand it. And we also thank you, Lord, that the things that we carry with us will one day be lifted from us. And though it's so hard, we still ask why, and we still don't understand why we had to pass through these places of sadness and pain, that one day, the coming healing, the coming glory, the coming lifting of our burdens will bring deep healing. And I pray for all of us here that if we're at that place, that you would meet us, that you would bring healing, that you would bring your presence, and that you would use us to do that for others as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.